This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 70, May the 4th, 1984. Well, I have quite a bit of material that I want to cover today, and I hope I can uh, do it justice within the span of an hour. First of all, I'd like to deal with a book just recently published, 1984. The author is Jeffrey Musayev Masson, M as in Mary, A-S-S-O-N. The title is The Assault on Truth, Freud's Suppression of the Seduction Theory. It's been published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux for 1695. It is a devastating critique of Freud by a psychoanalyst who is also a Sanskrit scholar. He was working with the Freud archives and uncovered material that upset Anna Freud very greatly, and so all relationship with him was severed. Not before, however, Masson had uh, gained all the material he needed from the Sigmund Freud archives, where he was project director. The gist of his discovery was simply this. Freud had, for a time, worked at the Paris morgue. At the Paris morgue, he found that there was a cover-up on a particular type of case, namely child molesting that many children were very savagely molested and murdered in the process. And these offenses were quite apparently uh, by their parents, their father. However, authorities apparently preferred to believe the parents rather than the child. Uh, and so the child was not taken seriously, the child died, or the child was murdered in some instances. Nothing was done. Three volumes of reports on these cases were written. Freud had all three volumes as well as his personal experience. He wrote a paper which he delivered to psychiatrists in Vienna on the subject. It was greeted with hostility. The attitude of psychiatrists was that they did not want to find a physical fact, a criminal act behind such things, but some kind of fantasy, a fantasy on the part of the child. Their thesis was that a child's word should never be taken as against the parent's word, and that children are given to fantasy and are liars. Well, subsequently, Freud had a relationship, apparently homosexual, with William Flies, a younger man, also a psychiatrist, and markedly an inferior man. Now, we don't know too much about that relationship except that some years later, in 1910, in writing to Ferenczi, Freud pushed him away. 
saying, I no longer have any need to uncover my personality completely. And you correctly trace this back to the traumatic reason for it. Since Fly's case, with the overcoming of which you saw me recently occupied, that need has been extinguished. A part of homosexual cathexis has been withdrawn and made use to enlarge my own ego. I have succeeded where the paranoiac fails, end of quote. In other words, by Freud's own statement, he had either been in love with flies or had had a homosexual relationship with him. Now this becomes all the more pertinent as we realize that much later it became apparent from the son of flies, Robert Flies, that his father had molested him. Thus, Freud had an involvement with someone who was a child molester and with whom he had some kind of homosexual relationship. And this man, Flies, originated the thesis that children imagine and enter into fantasies about relationships with their parents. Now, Flies had an obvious reason for such thinking. It was a way of protecting himself against anything his little boy might say. Freud picked this up and developed it, and this is at the heart of Freudianism. The whole idea of infantile sexuality, of the Oedipus complex, of the infant's libido, and much more, all of these were used to justify his cover-up of child molestation because he had found it unpopular with his peers. So, the whole of Freudian psychoanalysis rests on a cover-up. It rests on Fly's work to hide his own relationship with his son and Freud's use of it to explain away the stories of children. Masson then goes on to deal with one specific case at great length where a woman had been molested. And when Freud worked to convince her that it was her imagination. And this was the essence of the Freudian approach. Well, it's not surprising then that uh, Freud said, and I quote, patients are riffraff, unquote, because you would expect patients to be hostile to that kind of therapy a therapy that was designed to destroy reality and make the victim the offender. Now to another subject, <clears throat> a very interesting book, not 
the best written book by quite a margin, is Viktor Suvarov's The Liberators, My Life in the Soviet Army. I recently dealt with another book by Suvarov, a much more formal analysis of the character of the Soviet Army. This particular book is the most important inside information we have had about the Soviet Army from an officer who defected. The first section deals with the army as theater. The army, says Suvarov, in the Soviet Un Union, is theater. It is putting on a show. And its idea is to present a facade to the world of a powerful army. Wherever anything involving the presence of foreigners is involved, they have some show divisions made up of officers who play the role of enlisted men. And he writes of these show divisions, and I quote, all these divisions exist solely for show. They only know parades, demonstrations, solemn visits by foreign guests, guards of honor, and they have no battle training whatsoever. All these court divisions, and there are nine of them in the Soviet army, are absolutely incapable of fighting. But they are kept always at full strength with 12,000 men in each, which represents 108,000 of the very best soldiers and officers in all the Soviet land forces. Then he goes on to say that uh, when you enter the army, it is quite a shock because the army from top to bottom is openly contemptuous of Marxism. And he... Uh, speaks of the fact that people openly talk in the army about after the revolution. And he says, we hear anti-Soviet remarks every day and at every turn. This is a very interesting account because it gives a devastating insight and the fact that the army despises the Soviet leadership. Those who get to the top are ones who play ball with the powers that be, but not even they have any respect for the Marxist order. He also says that the army is badly equipped, it has no morale, it is used each year for harvest so they can't wage war very well anymore at harvest times. He says, by the way, in 1967, the year of the great 50th anniversary, was also the year of a record harvest. 
few people ever bother to ask themselves why these good harvests happen at all. But the key is quite simple. We have record harvests every year. Only there is nobody to gather them in. And that's the problem. The peasants do produce fairly good harvests. But neither the army, the students, schoolboys and schoolgirls are capable of doing the harvesting. And life on the farm is so miserable that there's no one there, just barely enough to get the harvest planted or the crop planted, but not enough to harvest. He gives us an idea of the top leadership. For example, he says that the new head of the chief political directorate of the Soviet army, uh, Army General Epishev, suffers from the severest form of sclerosis. But he's up at the top. Who's going to do anything to him? And he describes a speech given by Epishev. And uh, he was repeating himself. He was giving the same examples which he had already given, and he was shouting out the same slogans which he had shouted just a short while ago. What had happened? Well, General Epishev had gone to the podium with both his speech and the carbon copy of his speech. A secretary had forgotten to remove and file the carbon copy. So he read page after page of this long speech, first the original and then the carbon copy, and was too senile to know what he was doing. Moreover, he says that when he returned to the great applause of the <laughs> military audience, to his place on the platform, where the Minister of Defense, Marshal of the Soviet Union, Comrade Gretschko, was sitting with the other sclerotics and uh, senile old bodies. None of them even so much as noticed what had just happened. <laughs> they were either too busy dozing or too senile to know any better. One of the interesting episodes, which has been reported before, but not in the same detail, tells of the slavishness of the Soviet army. During the war, a B-29 bomber had to land in the Soviet Union. The Politburo felt it should be returned. They were afraid not to do otherwise. But Stalin's perspective was that the Soviet Union would keep it because it was the best bomber going and copy it. And he said, in effect, that the United States wouldn't have the courage or the gumption to say anything about it. So they kept it. And Stalin was right.
Stalin ordered then that the bomber be copied totally. Well, it was, and we all know the story because it's been often told how uh, even a bullet hole was copied because it had to be identical. However, there was a problem. The bomber had an American star and American insignias on it. <laughs> Should they copy that too or replace it with a red star? Nobody dared make the decision. After all, the orders was it had to be copied exactly as is. So the question was sent up through channels and it finally got to Barry ahead of the KGB. Not even he dared make the decision. He went to Stalin, who then ordered the change, but was delighted at the whole incident. And with good reason. It demonstrated how radical his control was. People were afraid to do what was the obvious common sense thing without referring it all the way to the top. One of the problems that Savarov says is the lack of a common language. Just within the European part of the Soviet Union, there are many languages. In the Asiatic, Asiatic portion, a vast number of languages. So what happens? He's describing experiences all the way through this book. And I quote, My guardsmen didn't even understand the Russian language, the language of their commander, nor did they, did they understand one another because all the nationalities had been mixed up, unquote. They are afraid to put too many of the same nationality together, so they mix them up. But then these men cannot understand the simplest orders. He goes on to deal with... Uh, the liberation of Hungary and Czechoslovakia. It was a traumatic experience for the Soviet Union because what the army found out in those two instances was they were liberating a country with a higher standard of living. They were imposing upon them a tyranny that was going to hurt them. So now the Soviet troops in Poland and elsewhere are kept behind fences. They cannot go into the cities. They cannot see the life in the Central European countries. Why? Because then they would realize how backward they are by comparison. A very interesting book, Victor, Victor Suvorov, The Liberators. At the same time, I also read Edward N. Lutwak, L-U-T-T-W-A-K, The Grand Strategy of the Soviet Union, published by St. Martin's Press in New York in 1983 for 1495. It doesn't compare with the 
Savarov book because, of course, Litvak of Georgetown University, an able man, no doubt, is dealing with official documents all the way through. I would say his analysis is, given that limitation, perhaps as good as can be expected. But Suvarov is dealing with reality. I want to refer to something else in the Washington Times for Tuesday, April 24, 1984, on section 1, page 1. There is an article by Phil Nicolaides, The Evil Empire is Crumbling. And it is a description of what is happening within the Soviet Union. On the basis of evidences from defectors, there are two groups working to replace the Marxist powers. And he believes this is going to happen before very long. He believes that the army will probably take over. How true this is, we cannot say, but it is, at the very least, an interesting uh, statement. I mentioned earlier Stalin's power and the fear of anyone doing the common sense thing on the B-29 bomber. Even when Stalin was in his last days, that fear remained. Stalin in his home outside Moscow where he spent virtually all his time in his later years, had several bedrooms so that if any assassin broke into one, he would not know which one. And he would not tell anyone which bedroom he was going to sleep in. This, by the way, is something done more than once by tyrants. At any rate, when he had his fatal or last attack, he did not get up as usual in the morning. Everyone was concerned, but it was nightfall before anyone dared break down any of the doors to see what had happened to him. They were so afraid of doing anything. Now, this was the Politburo. KGB agents who were taking care of the house, they were that afraid. So uh, this is the kind of thing that Stalin worked for. That uh, story, by the way, of his death is in The Death of Stalin by George Bortoli, which was published in 1975 and is no longer in print. Well, now to some other subjects, but first of all, I did deal with Freud earlier. I'd like to 
turn briefly to a story from another psychoanalyst, Theodore Reich, R-E-I-K, in his book of Love and Lust. Now, Reich is the only one of the psychoanalysts who can be good reading. There's a human quality about him, or was. He died, I believe, in 1959 or 69. But at any rate, <clears throat> Reich uh, sometimes shows excellent insight and common sense, and other times, of course, is your typical psychoanalyst. But uh, this passage I enjoyed. Now, quote, I like the story of the courtship of Moses Mendelssohn, the famous German-Jewish philosopher, whom Lessing called a second Spinoza. It is a story not only of human frailty, but also of affection. It proves that love is as great a leveler as death. The young philosopher Mendelssohn was a, on a visit in Hamburg almost 200 years ago. There he made the acquaintance of the noble merchant Guggenheim and his family. Mendelssohn, who was small and hunchback, fell in love with Guggenheim's charming daughter, Fruchtje. After a stay of several weeks in the city, he visited the banker in his office and asked him what the girl had said about him. Guggenheim hesitated, but the young philosopher insisted on being told the truth. So the father said, Well, you are a philosopher and a wise man. You will not take it amiss. The child said she got frightened when she saw you because, he hesitated, because I am a hunchback, asked Mendelssohn. Guggenheim nodded. The philosopher said he guessed as much and that he only wanted to say farewell to the girl. He went upstairs and found her busy with some needlework. She avoided looking at him during their conversation. Cleverly, he led her around to the subject which was in mind. She asked him whether he too believed that marriages are made in heaven. Certainly, he replied. And something quite unusual happened to me. As you know, they call out in heaven at the birth of a child. This one and that one will get this one and that girl for a wife. When I was born, my future wife was also thus announced. But it was added, she will, alas, have a terrible hump. I shouted, oh God, Lord, a girl who is humpbacked will very easily become bitter and hard. A girl should be beautiful. Good Lord, give the hump to me and let her be handsome and well-formed. The girl, deeply moved, stretched out her hand for Mendelssohn's. She became his faithful and loving wife. End of quote. Well, my wife Dorothy says Mendelssohn was a very, very wise man. He knew women. Now to another subject. Someone sent me a book recently which is not available in this country, but only in Britain. It is 
by Stephen Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T, The Brotherhood, The Secret World of the Freemasons, published in Britain, London, 1984. The occasion for this book was a couple of police scandals involving Scotland Yard and the uh, London City Police. What happened was that uh, some men were involved in some fraud. Major financial fraud. It so happened that these men were Masons. At a critical point in these two cases, they took the detectives and in the other case the police into their confidence because they recognized them as fellow Masons and they thereby got protection. The scandal built up until it involved more and more of the police and detective forces who were Masons and then the whole thing unfortunately broke loose because it had built up to the point where it could no longer be hid. And the result was a great deal that uh, reflected badly on Freemasonry. As a result, Stephen Knight goes into the matter and he says, this is the danger of secret societies. A secret society can form an alliance against the public. And he deals with the problem that in Parliament, Freemasons can cross party lines to come together on a common venture and thus frustrate the will of the people. But even more, he deals with a key problem. And this is why the book is important. He deals with a case of which we heard more than a little in this country, but not this aspect of it. The Franklin Bank in New York, the Vatican Bank, and much more involving the banker Sindona and many another person. Now, what was uncovered in Italy was that Sindona was a mason. The lodge of which he was a member had as its key figure, Gelli, a former fascist. This lodge, to a great extent, was controlling many aspects of Italian politics. But what was not known until this scandal was investigated was that Gelli had become a part of the KGB. And the KGB was through him controlling these men in the banking industry and in government. Moreover, what was discovered was that
the Communist Party, uh, the KGB rather, not the Communist Party, but the KGB has come to realize that any secret society that has so extensive a hold on people of importance in any nation is an ideal target for infiltration. And so, he says, the goal of the KGB now is to infiltrate Masonic lodges throughout the Western world and to manipulate key persons in them. And he says, this is now a major goal of the KGB and an area where ha they have accomplished a great deal. For this reason, this book is important. Now to go on to another uh, subject. There is an excellent book on the plot to kill the Pope by Paul Hens, H-E-N-Z, published by Charles Scribner's Sons in New York in 1983 for $14.95. It is an interesting account, and it does raise some very important questions about the whole operation of the KGB throughout the Western world. And it is a lengthy account of the background of the plot, the background of the KGB and its methodology, its form of operation. And it is interesting that uh, there was so much that made clear that the plot had been advertised. The assassin had threatened to kill the Pope a year and a half before. It was known that he was not a right-wing extremist, nor, by the way, that he was Armenian, and both facts were published. It was only after some time that uh, his KGB affiliations were made known. He was, by the way, not a KGB man, but a hired gun. He was just a terrorist who was for hire. So the interesting thing is that... Uh, It took so long to get the truth, and that in the process, every kind of false lead was advertised. Very, very telling book on what our situation in the world today is like, and the difficulty of getting a very obvious truth. Well, another book published in 1983 by the University of Tennessee Press in Knoxville, 
is Five Tragic Hours, The Battle of Franklin by James Lee McDonough. I don't know the price of the book, but it is about a particularly bloody and disastrous defeat for the Confederacy in the Civil War. And I do know, by the way, that the books have been written and there is a new one out attempting to vindicate General Hood. But the importance of the book to me, and by the way, I do believe they substantiate their case against Hood. The importance of the book to me is that it tells us a great deal about a number of groups today. Well, first of all, to uh, deal with the book and what it's about. The Southern cause is discussed by these historians, who, by the way, are Southerners. The simple fact is that uh, the Southern cause was a vague one. The Southern forces were not united in terms of anything positive. Each had a loyalty to a particular area and a region. There was a loyalty to Mississippi or to Georgia or to North Carolina, but there was no overall loyalty to the Confederacy or to a common cause. This has been ascertained from studies of the diaries of many of the men. But the key fact is that Hood went into war with illusions that were shared by many other commanders. Hood was a great admirer of Lee and Jackson, and with good reason. Those were men to be admired. But what Hood and others like him saw, but Hood was the number one man in this, was the surface, the uh, dash, the vigor, the uh, magnificent uh, seeming spontaneous uh, work of these men. And they did not appreciate that behind Jackson's every move there was the mind of a mathematician. There was endless planning, an eye to every detail, a meticulous care. And Lee was similar. Both men were marked by a thoroughness a consideration of every detail which did not show on the surface because they didn't say, I spent the night uh, planning or studying topography maps and that sort of thing. And too many lesser generals in the South felt that an old-fashioned, semi-medieval uh, heroism was going to win the day. 
and the result was more than one disaster. And the Battle of Franklin was the culminating disaster. It was done without adequate planning. It was a kind of an ad hoc thing. Hood apparently believed that heroics would replace planning. The authors write, other matters indicate he was living, Hood, in a dream world, torn somewhere between the realities of the cold Nashville hills and the memory of war in Virginia during the more romantic days. Still, Hood wanted to be a Lee, but he lacked that officer's character. The deluded Hood issued congratulations to the army on December 1 for the victory of the previous day. On December 3, he reported to Richmond that a victory had been gained at Franklin, but mentioned nothing of his losses save the casualties in the officer's rank. On December 5, Hood reported to Richmond again. He did not mention the general casualty figures, but said only that the loss of officers was excessively large in proportion to the loss of men. The government would not learn the truth until February 1865, unquote. The battle was a very great disaster. And Hood was not even aware of how great a disaster, or that it was a disaster, until some time later. Now, his idea was that heroics in one smashing battle in which all the men were summoned to be heroes for the Confederacy was going to make him great and win the cause. I feel this is important because it was not only Hood and it was not only a few other Southern officers who shared that illusion. It has been all too common in our history. I think it marks a great deal of the conservative movement. Everybody expects to take over the country with one election, one battle, as it were. And they pack up their um, things and go home after the election, as though the whole thing were over. The number of causes that showed a dramatic decline in giving after the election of Reagan was legion. And it was precisely because of that mentality. But that was the time to begin the battle all the more earnestly. A lot of the very sound conservative political action groups have not been able to get the financing since then. People feel they indulged in the heroics once and there's nothing left to fight for. It's the hood mentality, the Battle of Franklin mentality. And this is why we get wiped out. Or consider the Christians, who I would say 
have done that in their church and state battles more than once. The same thing happened with their expectation that everything would be a smooth sailing situation after the election of Reagan and then the disillusionment. Well, I can understand the disillusionment, but not stopping the fight. So every group that was involved in trying to carry on the battle in the courts found the funds were drying up, and they still haven't recovered. Everybody is ready to do a kind of pseudo-medieval charge with banners and shining armor, and then quit. And they forget that this is a battle that is going to go on for our lifetime and in the lifetime of our children. That it takes a long, long time to turn a situation around. Well, a few other little items. I see that I'm not going to be able to cover all that I'd hoped to in fact, I may skip over some of these things uh, just for two. First, very briefly, one of the books I read uh, this past week is an older one, published in 1973 by the California Historical Society, a series of historical essays edited by George H. Knowles, K-N-O-L-E-S, Essays and Assays. California history reappraised. The uh, particular essay that interested me was one, very briefly, that dealt with the attitude of Americans who came to California. They no sooner settled here than they were creating myths about the state acting as though they had destroyed an idyllic Mexican Republic, a republic that had supposedly been here for a long time living peacefully. Well, the Mexican Republic, or the Mexican rule of California, was a short thing. The Mexicans had seized it from the Spaniards and driven out the Spaniards. There were very few old families here. Moreover, it was anything but an idyllic situation. But no, they romanticized it and acted as though they had destroyed something that was blissful and idyllic and had polluted California. So you began to get fiction, Helen Hunt Jackson with a, a book, Ramona, fantasy from beginning to end, Gertrude Atherton with her books in which the Americans come out very badly, the idealization of everything in the past. When Stanford was built, uh, President Jordan took delight in naming streets on the campus after Spanish pioneers to the amusement of the old residents. But it was ironic at the same time that David Starr Jordan idealized the old Mexican days. 
he showed little enthusiasm for the Mexican people of his own day. He called them ignorant, superstitious, and ill-nurtured, with little self-control and no conception of industry or thrift, lacking, indeed, most of our Anglo-Saxon virtues, unquote. Neither did he do anything to get Mexican students into the university. In fact, he kept tallies of the arrests in Santa Clara County by race, to prove that Mexicans, Italians, and Chinese were inferior because of their police records. <laughs> but somehow we had polluted the idyllic republic the Mexicans had. Well, we're still indulging in that kind of nonsense. And the idea is that somehow our generation polluted the America of yesterday, or the America of yesterday polluted the generation before us, America, and certainly we polluted what the America, uh, American Indians had. But nobody will write about what great polluters and destroyers the Indians were. They would set fire to forests or the, to the prairie just to drive the animals towards them so they could slaughter them. Well, now on to something else. Poetry, John. I'm talking to you, John Lofton. You asked for poetry, and I'm going to give it to you. One of my favorite people, this is not great poetry, but I find it moving. Uh, one of my favorite people is a Japanese Christian who died some years ago, Toyohiko Kagawa. Now, during his lifetime, uh, Kagawa was the source of a great deal of controversy because many evangelical and reformed Christians were sure he was a heretic, and many very fine reformed people who had been his classmates were insistent that he was a good old-fashioned Calvinist. Well, the simple fact is that Kagawa was not very astute theologically, but he was a man of great faith. And I certainly delighted in him and in his work. He was a kind of a modern St. Francis. Did not, unfortunately, create a movement but worked in very much the same way. These poems are songs from the slums, a kind of diary written during the years he lived in the Shinkawa slums after his conversion, working to convert those people. The first one is titled simply Shinkawa. One month in the slums, and I am so sad, so sad I seem devil-possessed or mad. Sweet heaven sends no miracle to ease this hell. This careless earth rings no alarm bell. But here there are slippery streets which are never dry. They are lined with open sewers where rats come out to die. Tattered 
paper doors stand wide to winds that beat. The houses are all of a reddish black, like the hue of stale whale meat, filth on the flimsy ceilings, dirt in the musty air. Elbowed out of their crowded rooms, people are everywhere. All night long they crouch in the cold, huddled on broken benches, where there's never a moment's lifting of the heavy, offal stenches. The painted idiot girl upon whose back vile pictures were tattooed in red will never lure men to her den again. She is dead. You are... You ordinary people upon the hill to whom the slums are vague, listen and tremble as I scream to you. She died of plague. I came to bring God to the slum, but I am dumb, dismayed. Betrayed by those whom I would aid, pressed down so sad I fear that I am mad. Pictures race through my brain and lie upon my heart. Pictures like this, a man, legs rotted off with syphilis. And yet he need not fret that money does not come because his wife is rented out and brings sufficient sum. I hear a harsh voice cry out, Hear you, dance! I see a thin child dodge. And I know it's, it is the boy whose father kicks him. Twelve years old, driven from bed into the street, naked and cold. I must be done with thoughts like these. The raindrops patter slowly from the eaves. The fire beneath my half-boiled rice is out. I hear the rising roar of ribald shout that brings the evening to Shinkawa slum. Is there no way but help and come? Then this one, spring night. One sweet spring night, two little actress girls dressed all in red, their faces powdered to a ghastly white, sat in the doorway of a restaurant blazing with light. There they played the koto. As they sang, the music trickled like a little brook out of a valley, while their voices rose piercing and clear or died in whispers. Crowds stood there and stared and stared, and I stared with them. Then I went away and hid my face and wept wept for the woe those little singing girls must know. This one, only a flower. Strange that the spring has come on meadow and vale and hill, for here in the sunless slum my bosom is frozen still, and I wear the wadded things of the dreary winter days. But out of the heart of this little flower, God gazes into my face.
and this one is titled The Land of Han. He cannot save himself. Long ago the crowds reviled a man who came to save them, and I who fain would follow him am spent. For I can see no hope for the slums, because that, first of all, this thing is wrong, that men should crowd thus in the dearth, and dark and dirt should crowd and throng. I would lead them away from their bondage, on and on and on, to the Northland, the land of trees, the lovely land of Han, where mosquitoes never torture, and there's never pain to bear. But flowers, buds are bursting, and spring is everywhere, where a fairy fragrance flutters on the clean, cool breeze, and tiny, straw-thatched home huts are nestled neath the trees, where bonny birds sing gaily in the glory of the dawn, and friendly folk fare forth to work each bright and happy morn, where the sun shines out in splendor when the white mist fades where the crystal streamlets tinkle. And there comes the twinkle, twinkle, the sunlight falling, flashing on the spades, where the hazy purple mountains and the blue, blue rivers sing. God is here around you, is here in everything. Yes, I would lead my people on and on and on to the Northland, the land of trees, the lovely land of Han. But, oh, in my heart there is pity, for my people must stay in the city. And this six-foot shack that shelters me is the only place where I want to be. Well, I shall read more from Songs from the Slums next time. Meanwhile, it has been good to have this time with you. I always look forward to it. God bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening.